You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, pretty big weekend in the mixed martial arts. Yes, it was. Big, busy weekend, and then you show up to my house in a pair of weird strappy sandals. I just came from vacation, man. I got my action sandals on. I can my tell. My river sandals. Yeah. I'm ready to get out and just run through the surf. I'm going to be honest with you. You don't seem like you're 100% back to work right now. Seems like your head's still at the rental cabin, if you know what I mean. Hey, I'm not going to deny it, you know? Some guys, they got, they, they got a hard time. Now, here's the thing. Usually, I stay ready, so I don't got to get ready. I'm having a little bit of a hard time shifting out of, shift, getting this Ferrari into first gear. Let's just say that. Do you think that the, uh, the tires on the Ferrari in this case might be the issue? Yeah, I know. I got senioritis over here. I know you're still trying to make fun of my sandals. These sandals are ridiculous. They're just chacos, man. They've got like three more straps than you need Which, on there. What you are doing right now is showing your ignorance, especially as a person who lives <laughs> in the great state of Montana to not know about chacos. You know what I know well, about? Here, here's, here's what we'll do, smart guy. Go get your flip-flops. Go get your little flippity floppities. We'll go out in the street. We'll have a race, foot race. <laughs> Is that what we'll do? Yeah. And I'll be finishing the race, turning around to look for you. You'll be in the middle of the street picking up your flip flops if you haven't sustained a terrible bruise already. Even with your chacos on, I still think I beat you in that foot race. Nope. No way. You would turn an ankle because your flip flops would fly off first step, and then you'd be out there running in the pavement in your bare feet. Don't act like I won't do that. You, you're not Kenyan. <laughs> you, you don't run around your bare feet. Hey, listen, man, if, it, if that's what it takes to beat you in these stupid sandals, I'll do it. I'll pay the price. You don't have a chance. Not a chance in hell. Anyway, we had uh, UFC 213 Saturday night. Well, shit, man, we closed out International Fight Week. Of course it was going to be big. Red, white, and fight week. And the night before that, you had uh, the uh, tough 564 finale. That's right. Headlined by Justin Gagey and uh, Michael Johnson. Justin Gaethje, or Gothsji, if you prefer. It's, uh, and then you got, uh, not to leave it out, we're recording this a day late on Tuesday, because I'm just coming back from vacation. You got Dana White's Contender Series, kicking off first time ever tonight, Tuesday Night Fights. That's right. Which I actually think is a pretty good idea. Also, though, did you realize that it's basically five fights between dudes you've never really heard of in the tough gym? Did you realize that? Oh, it's no, I didn't, know, I didn't know they were doing it in the gym, but I guess that, you know, if you want to keep production costs down for, and your, you do, uh, for your streaming you series. You absolutely do. It's me, and I'm not saying this as an insult to the thing. I actually like this about it, how much it increasingly reminds me of when you play the old uh, EA Sports Fight Night video game and your fighter has to start out in a series of gym fights. And it's just like heavy bags you put swaying it in, in the background. Mode. Yeah, you put it in career mode. And then like the crowd is basically just, you know, lingerers at cage side, just kind of standing there with their arms crossed watching you fight. That's what this is. The UFC is gradually becoming a video game. And I'm kind of into it. The, it's gradually becoming its own video game in career mode. That's right. I'm going to say two things about uh, Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series. Number one, I think it's a pretty good idea. And I think it's like the kind of stuff that they probably should be doing on the fightpass.com. And I all my second thing is that I hope that the mixed martial arts media does not treat Dana White's Tuesday night contender series 
as another fight card which must be exhaustively reported on. I agree. Do not ask me to write a recap of the Dana White's Contender series. Also, um, at some point we're going to have to figure out what is happening with the contracts with these dudes, right? Because they're fighting to try to get a contract in the UFC. They must be under some kind of uh, arrangement to fight in this thing and compete in it in the first place. We know that a lot of dudes who got those tough contracts, uh, they weren't all they were cracked up to be. One has to think that a similar thing might be going on with this contender series. Well, now you're talking details. Yes, I am. I'm well, thinking most of the people involved in this are taking more of a big picture approach. <laughs> I guess my are. guess. Yeah. Uh, also, not to uh, – it'll be old news by the time people listen to this, but we can't forget also today the Conor McGregor Floyd Mayweather press conference, which I assume will be a complete shit show and Floyd Mayweather will hit him in the head with a microphone and they will both be thrown in jail, one for assault, the other for tax evasion. And then uh, everybody will be wondering why we're not talking about it. So we should mention that now. New sponsor alert, the co-main event podcast is excited to welcome Battles of London as the show's sponsor for a few weeks this month and next. What is Battles of London, you wonder? Glad you asked. Battles of London is a new up-and-coming fightwear brand based in the United Kingdom, making elite clothing for combat sports aficionados. They've already been called, and I'm quoting here, Combat Sports Lux by none other than the Times of London. I've been emailing back and forth with the owner, Steve, and he seems like a cool guy, and he's a regular CME listener. And they've got some cool stuff coming up this summer that we're stoked to tell you about. Ben, as the co-main event podcast resident jujitsu nerd, tell the kids at home all about it. I will, Chad. Thank you very much. Battles of London wanted to send a special shout-out to our listeners in the UK. We know there's a lot of them. Uh, let them all know that they're going to be out at the Polaris Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu card at the O2 on August 19th. The main event of that bad boy, by the way, is going to be Gary Tonin versus Dylan Danis, so you know it's going to be something you hashtag would watch. So not only can you go out to that, we catch some world-class submission grappling action, you can also stop by the Battles of London booth, meet the people who started the company, check out their new Battles of Paris capsule collection, and uh, who knows, maybe you tell them the CME sent you and you get some uh, patches for your gi. Yeah, that's going to be super cool, and we hope uh, to get all of the CME listeners all the information about that over the next month or so. Uh, but even if you can't make it out to Polaris, there are still plenty of cool stuff going on with Battles of London that you can check out. Battles of London have the designer fightwear thing going on, but their mission is actually a lot larger than that. They're out to raise awareness of combat sports as a positive lifestyle discipline that improves health, peace of mind, creativity, business, family, and friendships, friendships, all that stuff. Uh, want to know more about what's going on with Battles of London? Just go to the website, battlesoflondon.com, and enter the promo code CME to get 10% off your order. You can also email them at info at battlesoflondon.com if they happen to be out of something that you're after. In addition to that, you can follow them on Instagram and Twitter at Battles of London. They're on Facebook, naturally. Keep listening to the CME for the rest of the summer, and we'll tell you all you need to know about the rest of the cool stuff going on with Battles of London, because this time... We barely scratched the surface of what they're all about. Did, I, did you notice I picked you up there? I noticed you didn't really include that part in the first email you I got. You probably got cut off because you didn't click the got thing at the off. bottom that shows the rest of the email. Listen, man, I'm busy. I, I got shit to do. We got music again this week uh, from our colleague in the MMA media, Eric Fontanez. You can find his writing over at bloodyelbow.com. And if you like what you hear, you can find more of his music at soundcloud.com slash Eric Fontanez. Three rounds as usual this week. In the co-main event podcast, in round number one, Bobby fucking Knuckles, the UFC interim middleweight champion. And in round number two, Amanda fucking no-show. Is she still the champ? Mm, 
I don't know. In round number three, the moose is loose. That's right, Gegard Musasi on his way over to Bellator. All that, uh, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from the Mustard Tiger. Oh, okay. So we're excited to have him on board. Yet another character from Trailer Park Boys emailing the show. And if he can manage to sign a contract with a Premier League team, then he'll really be hitting all the bases there. Everyone just too embarrassed to give their real names that they email the co-main event podcast. Can you blame them? You know, it was dumb that we started doing this show under our real names. (laughs) We did. We did kind of screw up there. The Mustard Tiger writes, The fight was awesome, and if Gaethje lived up to every ounce, and Gaethje lived up to every ounce of the highlight nickname. Uh, but were you, but were you to rank it amongst the all-time UFC great debuts, where would you rank it? There's a lot of typos in this. Yep. Mustard Tiger typing this, with those big paws. This one I is assume. on the Mustard Tiger. Uh, basically, he asks, where do you rank Justin Gaethje's UFC debut of, among the all-time great UFC debuts? And then he gives some examples uh, that might be on there. Anderson Silva, Junior Dos Santos, Conor McGregor may give him a run for his money discourse. Now, Ben, uh, Justin Gaethje, obviously the former lightweight world series of fighting champion comes over to the UFC and makes what I guess I will call his long awaited UFC debut. Sure. Uh, he's a guy that, that, uh, through the sheer action and violence of his fights had, uh, already established a fairly good profile for himself. Even in that smaller organization comes over to the unit UFC this past Friday night, uh, as the main event of this ultimate fighter finale manages to do two things positively for himself. Number one, he escaped the uh, the banana peel that is normally the first fight in the UFC for the champion from a smaller organization. He goes out there and beats Michael Johnson uh, by second round TKO, so that was good for him. Secondly, Justin Gaethje came over, had a Justin Gaethje fight in the UFC, which has turned him from uh, this guy who had a nice little profile for himself now into a, a human that might actually be... Uh, a little bit of a star for the UFC moving forward, or at least establish him, his, himself as having that potential. Yeah, I mean, if you were somebody who had heard people talking about Justin Gaethje and heard the excitement about him, and you kind of wondered what all the fuss was about, this was the fight to show you what all the fuss was about. It, uh, You know, one of the most exciting fights, if not the most exciting fight we've seen all year, I think, uh, and just had all the hallmarks of a Justin Gaethje fight, because he's going to go out there, just guns blazing. He's going to almost get knocked out a couple times. Um, then he's just going to keep grinding away at you and break your will. Uh, and then he's going to do a, a goddamn backflip off the top of the cage, even if it took him three ti- three tries to get up there and he had to shove a commission guy out of the way. Then he just gets up there, backflip right back into the mess. Uh, you know, everything, all the Justin Gaethje greatest hits on display here. Uh, as far as where it ranks among the USA debuts, it's tough because this was one of those where, yeah, it's his USC debut, but it's not like he's a nobody. It's not like he, you know, he's a debuting in the main event. Um, so some of those are, are different than others. Like, you know, Conor McGregor, he was big in Ireland, and people over here were kind of like, I let's see why everybody's so excited about this guy. And he comes over, uh, you know, as a prelim guy. Junior Dos Santos goes out there as a huge underdog, knocks out for BC over Doom. Gaethje and Anderson Silva's debuts were a little more uh, similar say, to one another. I would say those two are comparable, right? Because Anderson Silva came in uh, with something of a of a, an established reputation himself, fighting mostly over in Japan, and then he goes out there and puts it on Chris Lieben, uh, foils his plan to just roughneck him, yeah. get out there and roughneck him. Going to roughneck him. Uh, uh, but see, that one I think 
the matchmaking is a little different. I think you match Anderson Silva up against Chris Lieb in there, you know exactly what you're doing. In retrospect, yes. <laughs> well, uh, I think this one, uh, giving him Michael Johnson, I think that was a good matchmaking decision because it was a solid test uh, against a guy who can find you out if you're not ready for that level, um, but also against a guy who's, you know, he's not exactly the elite of the division. And it was seemed like a, a genuine, let's see how Justin Gaethje's going to do in the UFC kind of test. And he passed it even while almost failing it, which seems like it's probably going to be what he does. And that's the thing I wondered watching this fight, you know, and I'm having a great time watching it. And then immediately afterwards, I'm thinking, how long can this last? And Justin Gaethje, I mean, like, I love his attitude about it where he's saying, hey, I'm going to get knocked out at some point the way I fight. I know how that goes. Uh, I'm I'm just trying to go out there and make sure I put on a good show and perform. And I wonder, you know, in five or six fights, what are we looking at here? Because you can't do this forever. Right. Well, let's talk about that aspect of it, because what we talked about last week before this fight happened, the big question about Justin Gaethje coming in would be, would he be able to continue the streak that he had in World Series of Fighting, where he's fighting the Luis Palominos, Brian Fosters, and Luis Firminos of the world? Uh, would he be able to continue that streak against the cutthroat shark tank nature of the UFC 155 pound division, which is the most competitive division in the entire sport. Pretty good start for him to go up there and beat Michael Johnson, who obviously is a top 10 guy, as you mentioned, not necessarily the kind of guy that we think is going to jump up and suddenly be the light heavy or the lightweight champion, but it's a good win to come in for Justin Gaethje as his debut. Now we're talking about uh, rumors circulating. Perhaps the UFC wants to set Gaethje up with, uh, perhaps a, a coaching stint on the ultimate fighter, no. which I think we would all give a resounding no to. And then potentially a fight with Eddie Alvarez, yes. which we would all give a resounding yes to. And in fact, I was going to say the only way Justin Gaethje and Eddie Alvarez don't end up having an absolute crackerjack of a fight is if you put them on the ultimate fighter together. Cause then one of them dudes is going to get injured and yeah. then they'll never fight. Cause well, that's how it goes. And you're also building in like this immediate delay in the whole thing. And, will be kind of sick of them together by the time they actually fight. I I hate that model. Like, let some old guys coach the ultimate fighter. Let some people who are actually interested in coaching coach the ultimate fighter. Uh, I I think the idea that it, you use it as a uh, a launch pad for people, I, I just don't know if that's supported by what we actually see happen for a lot of people. I mean, that pairing is magical. Eddie Alvarez and Justin Gaethje. Yes, please. Give me that fight. Take my money. Uh, but Jesus Christ, don't make me sit through Ultimate Fighter shenanigans for it. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Devin Scott. He writes, it was reported that Frank Mir's request to be released from the UFC was granted. USADA had suspended him after he tested positive for um, the, the Go ahead. dechydrocolomethylestestosterone. Nailed it. A.K.A. Alphabet Soup. Score one for Devin Scott there. Uh, his suspension ends April 8th, 2018. So what is in store for Frank Mir? Does he head to Ryzen FC, European Fight League, or ride out his suspension and try out Bellator? Uh, where do you think he will end up next? So, Ben, this uh, this release of Frank Mir, which I think he requested, right, and they granted it. Yes. Uh, just part of a slew of heavyweight news coming out of this UFC 213 weekend. Uh some some heavyweight fights also on that card. Alistair Overeem beats Fabricio Verdum. Uh, Curtis Blades beats Daniel Alphabet Soup. Uh, and then Travis Brown loses to the sweet O, Alexi Olenek. Did I get close there? Yeah. Olenek. 
Uh, so we just kind of wanted to look briefly at the sort of state of the heavyweight division. But let's start with Frank Mir, since that's a dude who's been in the UFC seemingly all of our adult lives, right? Since we were kids, Frank Mir has been fighting in the UFC. Hell, since Frank Mir was a kid, he's been fighting in the UFC. Yeah. Uh, now he has to go out and make a, a somewhat different future for himself. Where do you think he ultimately lands? Well, I like that Dylan Scott mentions the suspension aspect of it. Because if you want to go to Bellator, you're going to have to wait that suspension out. Uh, April 2018, you know, that's not a super long time to wait. He's 38. Um, you know, he's he's been off a little while now, so that will put him on the shelf for a good little bit. But then you can tell yourself that you're still doing it. You're still legit. You're out there. Who knows? Maybe Frank Mir goes out there and becomes Bellator heavyweight champion. That's not at all out of the realm of possibility. Or you just say you're here to have a good time and you fight Baruto on New Year's Eve in Ryzen. Well, and let me just make the point, those two things would not necessarily be mutually exclusive, right? Because Frank Mir's got some time to kill here. Right, but you can't go fight while you're under suspension. Like, the you, the clock does not run if you're doing that. You think they would be mad at him if he went over and fought in Japan? Well, you just, the the time serving does not really work. Uh, you, you, you don't get to say, I'm serving suspension, but I'm also fighting somewhere where you so can't they would, get to me. They would add that on the end of his sentence. Is yeah, what well, yeah, it would just keep going until he actually sat out and served the suspension. Oh, well that puts a different spin on it. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that's why you, you kind of got to choose a career path here, especially at his age. You got to decide what, what you're doing here. Are we just going to have some batshit good times? Uh, well, there's good times smoking in, and joking in Tokyo Mir in, in either of those places, right? Number one, we would we would all be lined up to see which body Frank Mir showed up with in Japan, <laughs> right. which which of the many Frank Mir bodies uh, he took out of the glass case and pulled on to go out there and have a fight against Baruto. And then if you go over to Bellator, I mean, you start thinking about it. They got Matt Matrione over there. You got Fedor Emelianenko. You got Roy Nelson. Uh, maybe you coax Brendan Schaub out of retirement. And then you start getting crazy. Maybe you fight Chael Sonnen. Who knows at heavyweight over there? Yeah, maybe you fight Gegard Mousasi. Who knows? In the in the Bellator heavyweight division. So Rampage Jackson, where are you at? Okay, Frank Mir, Rampage Jackson, both sad and hashtag would watch, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, but man, you are you better have a lot to drink before that one because <laughs> that's going to be tough. If you're Frank Mir, though, like you're hitting the streets. I don't know if, you know, unless he bolted right away and like went over to Pride when he was in his in his prime, like, I can't think of a better time for Frank Mir to hit the streets as a free agent, really. Well, okay. I, I do think you have to, if you're Frank Mir, be honest about what you're after right now. Because if you're after, let's get some paydays as quickly as we can uh, and stack up that money while we still can. Then you might think about Ryzen. Because uh, they could use Frank Mir in some real freak show shit. Uh, but if you want to be able to say... Like, hey, I'm legitimately still in this game. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be a champion still. Uh, then you have to wait it out and go to Bellator because that's really the only serious option available to Frank Mir. And you give him long enough for people to kind of forget the recent past of Frank Mir, but also still remember, hey, Frank Mir, then Bellator is going to be interested. You know, that we've seen how that works for them. A lot of this, the people who it seems like they might be damaged goods in the UFC, you wait a little while. The Some of the stuff fades, but the name still remains. Bellator wants them and can put them to good use, frankly. The fact that you just referred to Bellator as a, as the more serious option is really a commentary on the times. It's a, a comparative phrase. Next question this week comes to us from Dave Soskin. He writes, so it turns out Floyd can't pay his taxes? 
I'm not surprised, motherfuckers, but fighting Conor McGregor has to go down as one of the craziest things a delinquent taxpayer has ever done to get Uncle Sam off their back, right? So, Ben, things are starting to make a little bit more sense in the yes. world of Floyd Mayweather <laughs> versus Conor McGregor, correct? Yeah. What did, what did Floyd's lawyers call this? Like a, a significant... Liquidity event? Yes. It's a significant liquidity event that we're having on August the 26th next month. Or, as Floyd Mayweather put it in an Instagram post, bottom line, everybody just wants to be part of the Money May Show, including the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> Conor McGregor is going to... He's going to be able to make some hay with that, right? You know how he's, he's dying to go out there probably today. As we record this, he's going to be going out there to talk about how he's here to change Floyd Mayweather's bum life. The guy can't even pay his taxes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, really out here help, helping make America great again when you think about it, making sure that Floyd has the money to, to pay Uncle Sam, uh, keep the coffers full. But uh, according to you know, Floyd Mayweather claims that much, too much is being made of this. Also said he paid $26 million uh, to the IRS last year. So, uh, you know. It seems like rich people in this country have, especially recently, a long history of avoiding the full obligation of their tax debt. So maybe you put just Floyd Mayweather right there with Donald Trump and Mitt Romney, and uh, you, you can't feel too bad for the guy at that point. But I do think, it, like you said, it changes everybody's perspective when they hear something like that and then go, ah, I see. Right, because the thing that we all wanted to know about this previous to this news breaking was why is this a thing right why is anybody doing this clearly we knew kind of why connor is doing it because he's going to make 125 or 150 million dollars and then it'll be red panty night at the mcgregor household even though he's probably gonna have to give 40 million of it to the ufc still red panty night yeah, okay for the ufc as well yeah absolutely floyd it didn't quite make as much sense right we knew that it would he would probably view it as light work for himself to go out, make a chunk of change, and fight a guy that's never had a professional boxing fight before. You find out about this tax trouble, and it's, it seems to me like a piece of the puzzle. Boink! Fits right in there. Yeah. Changing the picture a little bit. Yeah, well, are you surprised, motherfucker, is my question to you? No, and I wonder if Floyd knows that uh, income tax on capital gains is much lower than income tax on... There you go. Earnings. This is this Maybe is something. Maybe he wouldn't be paying twenty six million in taxes if he was if he had bought some Microsoft stock instead of wanting to fight Conor McGregor. And instead of a bunch of cars. Uh, yeah. No. If he if he had talked this over with Mitt Romney at the yacht club, I'm sure he could have gotten some more sound investment advice that might have helped him avoid the situation. Uh, although I do want to mention while we're on the topic, and like we said, we we will not be able to comment on the sure to be insane press conference. So if that's what you're hoping for, maybe next week. I mean, I, we could probably comment on it. I think we probably all know what's going to go down. <laughs> yeah, everybody, there'll be an Adiva competition to see who can show up later. Uh, but also, um, did you see this report from ESPN talking about how the the first year under new ownership has gone uh, for WME, IMG, and the UFC? And one of the things it mentions is that. The money that the UFC will get for just allowing Conor McGregor to do this will be the most profitable event for the UFC this year. That's insane. That's not the most you'll the most money you'll make is for doing nothing. Is for just letting uh, your guy fight in order to take a piece of his paycheck because you got him under contract. That says something right there. Good money. Good work if you can get it. Yeah. 
Last question this week comes to us from Scott Sherman. He writes, what are your thoughts on the UFC putting Michael Bisping not only cage side for UFC 213, but right behind Yoel Romero's corner? Romero is in the most important fight of his career, and the count is behind him talking shit and heckling him the whole time. Shouldn't the UFC go the extra mile to ensure that its professional fighters are able to focus on the guy trying to hurt them at the time and not the guy who might get a chance to hurt them in the future? That was a close fight. Who's to say Bisping's antics didn't hurt Romero just enough to cost him a round? Uh, you can say what you want about Michael Bisping, and people can and will and do say a lot of things about Michael Bisping, but Ben, never will it be said after this middleweight title reign is, is over and done for Michael Bisping that he did not make the absolute most over what he was given. That's right. Right? Like, he's... Michael Bisping is wringing every last drop out of the rag that is the latter stage of his career, right? He's not... No cent. Not, not a single shilling will be left on the table when the count walks away. He's getting all that money. And well, I admire it, frankly. You know, I was sitting there watching him, especially when they cut to him tearing up the flag and throwing it at UL Romero during the fight. Uh, and then he comes in there afterwards and uh, flings uh, the title belt down at your boy Bobby Knuckles. And that's when it occurred to me that Michael Bisping is an actual James Bond movie villain. Uh, like, he checks a lot of boxes. Like, Snappy dresser, for one thing. Uh, distinctive accent. Yep. Weird facial scarring, basically. Check. Like, how, like, that's a classic Bond villain kind of thing. And that he comes in there and makes, like, stirs everything up enough to make sure that there is interesting conflict always going on. And, you know, you gotta respect it. Or, you don't have to respect it, but you gotta admit that you're having a good time while you're doing it. Cause Bobby Knuckles is there, and I'm sure we'll talk more about him, but, you know, he's being the good guy, he's kind of cracking jokes, it's a cool kind of response that he has to Bisping. Um, but Bisping is the Javier Bardem on, in Skyfall to Bobby Knuckles' uh, Daniel Craig here. And the same thing with Yuel Romero. He's got like multiple rivalries, just like plates spinning. Uh, on every possible surface right, right. now. You this, could book him against three different people right now and make a whole bunch of money. This shit with Yoel Romero is just insurance, right? Like that's, <laughs> right. That's, that's what, what you saying. do after this, this uh, right. Robert yeah, Whitaker that's fight. That's what I'm saying. Bisping's not going to leave a single uh, shilling on the table before he walks away because, like, him making sure to continue this rivalry with Romero is merely insurance because he's clearly going to go fight Robert Whitaker first we think like that would be the title unification bout the thing that makes sense so bisping is already thinking to toward after that because considering that romero comes out of this fight with a loss to whitaker bisping could end up fighting him next no matter what right like, if robert whitaker goes out there and torches mike bisping in one round he's lost he doesn't have the title anymore but the Yoel Romero fight is still good. Yeah, they can still keep burning pictures of each other over and over again. And credit to Yoel Romero for not backing away from some of these pro wrestling antics. He's going to show up with a picture of you holding your flag, an MMA junkie picture that he clearly just printed out from the internet, by the way. Um, and he's going to light it on fire and then use the flame to light a cigar while he's got a bottle of rum sitting there. The Cuban cookie monster knows his brand. See, I was going to say if... Uh... Bisping is Javier Bardem from Skyfall, perhaps Yoel Romero is Javier Bardem from No Country for Old Men. Okay. But then he I lights like the cigar, and I'm thinking, well, now you just got two Bond villains squaring <laughs> off. It's like a James Bond movie with no Bond. Okay. Except I guess maybe Robert Whitaker is James Bond? Yeah, looking from afar. Yeah. Uh, as for this question from Scott Sherman about uh, the 
UFC putting Michael Bisping right there, basically right behind UL Romero's corner. Did that fuck with him? Did it cost him around? Uh, that might be a little bit of a reach. I mean, you're a seasoned professional at that point. I don't know if, uh, I mean, if you let Michael Bisping get in your head from outside the cage sitting there in the crowd, then I think that's more on you than it is on anyone else. Uh, but it does tell you that the UFC, none of this was happening on accident. The UFC knew, like, okay, we want to make sure we keep these narratives going. Um, where Michael Bisping got a little Cuban flag, I don't know, but... <laughs> bag of props. <laughs> yes. Showed up to 213 with a bag of props. A good villain always has his props, Chad. You can't, you can't take that away. I mean, if I told you right now, like, if, you, if the camera panned to him during the fight and he was sitting there stroking a purebred cat <laughs> in his lap wearing an eye patch... Uh, with a cane that also had a sword inside of it, you wouldn't be that surprised. No, no, you wouldn't. Now, see, here's the thing about this, though. You can ask me to feel sorry for a lot of fighters vis-a-vis between-round hijinks. Yoel Romero is not one of them, okay? <laughs> like, yeah, he had to deal with Michael Bisping yelling at him from cage side, but we've seen Yoel Romero make his own moves. Over there in the corner. So we have. Maybe it's just a little bit of karma. We have indeed. Anyway, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the Co-Main Event Podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to get you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. It's a real good bet you're going to see a breakdown of the uh, Floyd mayweather Conor McGregor World Tour this Friday. Perhaps. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen yet. It's early. But you will get the Breakfast of Champions if you sign up. Uh, It's short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. And if you don't like it, well, it's really easy to unsubscribe. Now, we want to make sure to point out, Ben, the kids at home, they want to go to comainevent.com, not comaineventpodcast.com. That's right. That's what we've started to use as like an escort site. If you click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen at comaineventpodcast.com, you get yourself into a whole different thing. Yeah. That will actually, it's a side hustle we got going. That will not get you in touch with us. Right. But might. it might get you in touch with some kink that you've kept buried for far too long or possibly in touch with the fbi who knows as for right now though we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one Well, Ben, the kid, Robert Whitaker, is your new UFC interim middleweight champion after going out there in the main event of UFC 213 and defeating Yoel Romero in a close fight by decision. 48-47s across the board. Kind of remarkable when you think about it. Eight wins in a row now for Robert Whitaker. Still five months shy of turning 27 years old. I know that we, we said maybe he's the James Bond of this situation during the intro. And if you go to his Wikipedia page and you see the picture that's on there, yep, him in the tuxedo, feels like uh, maybe we weren't too far off there. But uh, right now, my friend, it's starting to look like maybe this is Robert Whitaker's world and we just live in it. Yeah, you know, you say impressive. What's really impressive about this is that he goes out there and almost immediately injures his knee and loses the first two rounds, I think. Then 
wins the last three on a knee that where you can clearly tell at times that he's not 100% confident in its stability. Uh, he said afterwards, you know, that it was an injury from training camp that immediately uh, UL Romero uh, set back weeks by kicking him, that, that kind of straight-on oblique kick to the knee. And then he still manages to win that fight somehow and win it, you know, not, you know, it's close fight, but I don't think you can really argue with the scores on this one. He pretty clearly won all three of those last three rounds uh, to do that against a guy like Yoel Romero uh, on one working leg is kind of remarkable. I, I mean, it's a, it's an, a feat to beat that guy, no matter what to do it like that under those circumstances and to have such a, just kind of like flippant good humor about it. Uh, laughing as he remarked that the bastard kicked it and set it back weeks. Um, that, I think, tells you what we're dealing with uh, in Bobby Knuckles. Yeah, and if you had any questions about Robert Whitaker after those back-to-back TKOs over Derek Brunson and Jacare Souza that set him up for this interim title fight, uh, I don't know what you could question about the guy's makeup or character or ability to be a top-level fighter now after seeing him get this come-from-behind victory over Romero, who's a guy... Uh, who's who's just like quite beastly like you think that they almost invented the term beast to refer to an athlete because of Yoel Romero he's just like a physical specimen uh and and uh, uh you know come comes with an amateur wrestling background that's obviously almost peerless in the UFC and uh since dropping to middleweight had been undefeated and and you know for Robert Whitaker to go out there and get this kind of victory I think is is just very very impressive and maybe most importantly now, sets him up opposite Michael Bisping, who he's just spent some time talking about during the intro. But if you're Robert Whitaker, and, and you know, it still feels like you're sort of still just getting started in your career, uh, maybe just because of your age more than anything else. Uh, but now you got this, this win over Yoel Romero that turned out to be a pay-per-view main event. Uh, and now you're probably going to fast forward right into another pay-per-view main event against Michael Bisping. Sky's the limit, man, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, and this was a really smart fight against Yoel Romero because, you know, you mentioned Yoel Romero's uh, wrestling credentials, and that's one of the things that makes it, him a tough guy to fight is because you know he can take you down uh, and he can hurt you on the ground, but he's also, like, such an unpredictable and unconventional fighter on the feet that he can just explode at any moment and completely knock you out. And it's hard to worry about both of those things simultaneously and defend against both of those things simultaneously. And Robert Whitaker did a good job. But for one thing, you know, he got taken down early in the fight and then popped right back up and uh, was really good at defending takedowns uh, later in the fight, even with his knee the way it was. But uh, he managed to keep that that fight at a range that really worked for him and kind of took away some of those strengths of Romero's. And Romero's still going to have his moments where he shows those flashes where he could possibly really hurt you. And, you know, a couple times it seems like Whitaker was centimeters away from being really hurt. But in controlling that range and that distance that the fight took place at, uh, he really took away some of the, the same weapons that Yuel Romero had used so effectively against other top middleweights. Uh, and then managed to use cardio as his own weapon later in the fight. It was really hurting Yoel Romero, and you could tell Yoel uh, Romero gave away, uh, you know, at least one round by just trying to conserve energy because uh, he had uh, some good momentum going after the the first and second round. And then you could tell he was worried about being able to make it five full rounds. And see, that's when you think about how both these guys match up with Michael Bisping. Um, Romero was a scary guy for Bisping just because he can knock you out. 
But Bisping could look at that one, I think, and see a more clear path to victory. He could say, I'm going to beat this guy with cardio. I'm going to beat him over the course of five rounds. I'm not going to get knocked out. I'm going to keep my work rate high and consistent, and I'm going to outpoint him. And I'm going to do the Bisping thing where I'm willing to wade through a ton of shit to get there. And he's been good at that. You know, you look at his fight against Anderson Silva and Dan Henderson. That's one thing that you know Michael Bisping can still do at this point in his career. Against Robert Whitaker. I don't know if you can do that as Michael. I don't see you beating him with cardio and work rate. Yeah, from a fear, uh, from a pure like matchup of styles or physical matchup perspective, we certainly come out of this fight feeling like Robert. Maybe Robert Whitaker is the more difficult uh, matchup for Michael Bisping, since as you just laid out, like the blueprint to beat Yoel Romero, which Robert Whitaker just laid out, is pretty much how Michael Bisping fights. Like. That would just be a Bisping fight, really. He'd just go out there and work his game against Yoel Romero and hope that he didn't get kneed uh, right in the fucking face like Chris Wyman did, and, and maybe he would come out okay. Uh, Robert Whitaker, maybe not so much. You know what I think is going to be interesting slash perhaps hilarious is it, once we get into a, a build toward the fight that ends up being Robert Whitaker versus Michael Bisping, will be to watch uh, Bisping do his pro wrestling heel James Bond villain thing uh, opposite Robert Whitaker's unbelievable affability. Yes. Yeah. It's like Robert Whitaker seems like a genuinely good humored dude. Like I think, I think we wish he had, he was a little quicker to embrace the Bobby Knuckles nickname. That's like the worst thing you can say about him. Right. Now. But like, he seems like such a genuinely good dude that at this point I'm kind of like, well, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to like respect his wishes. Yeah. We'll probably continue to call him Bobby Knuckles now and again on the podcast. Cause it's so much fun every time. Uh, but like, I'm also not going to be a jerk about it. Robert Whitaker seems like, like just like a terrific dude. Yeah, no, and his reaction to Bisping coming in there and doing his whole Bisping thing. First of all, I love that Bisping starts out by being like, I was going to come in here and talk a bunch of shit, but it was a great fight. So respect to UL and respect to, to Robert Whitaker. And now I will commence with that shit that I kind of led you to believe I wasn't going to talk. <laughs> He's saying, like, I was going to do this. It leads you to think, like, okay, now you're not. But wait, now you are you are doing it, though? Okay, so you are still going to do that. Uh, and the tact he seemed to be taking is you're a poser, first of all. Love love bringing back the skate park lingo uh, from the mid-'90s. You're a, you're a poser for wearing that belt um, as if, yeah. It, the UFC puts a belt around his waist and he's supposed to be honor bound to take it off. Um, and like, you know, it's a fake belt. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. All that stuff. Like, okay, that's going to be Bisping's approach. I can see him getting a lot of mileage out of something like that. But then Robert Whitaker, when Bisping flings down his own belt for questionable reasons, uh, just kind of laughs and says, can I keep that? I mean, that's, you you sold me right there. I'm interested in, in watching how that dynamic plays out, especially if they're going to punch each other in the face at the end. Let's talk a little bit about Yoel Romero. He has his own eight-fight win streak snapped uh, by this loss to, to Robert Whitaker. He just turned 40 years old in April. But, like, far from the end of the road, I think, for Yoel Romero. And it's not like even after this defeat, he lacks compelling stuff to do next. Like we said, that Michael Bisping fight is going to be good whether Michael Bisping has the title or not. Yoel Romero maybe has to go get a win in between then and now, but who knows? Uh, and then you look around the middleweight division, uh, you still got dudes like Luke Rockhold who's hanging around out there saying he's not going to come back unless the UFC gives him something interesting and big to do. Uh, you know, you, you already beat Jacare and Chris Weidman, but there's there's a bunch of other guys on this list that Yoel Romero could uh, 
conceivably occupy his time with. So he comes out of this thing, uh, while not the interim middleweight champion, still with, I think, some compelling roads that he can follow uh, in the immediate. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of middleweights out there who do not want to face UL Romero, uh, regardless of that loss. And, you know, if you have the wherewithal to post your own video of you smoking the cigar and lighting up the picture, uh, basically acting like you're Serrano from Major League, uh, which is kind of an awesome way to go with it for UL Romero, people are just definitely going to be interested in seeing what you do next. And his attitude after the loss, I thought, was just really, uh, you know, that's how you want to take that, I guess. Uh I think that you could do a lot of interesting things with Yo Romero. I guess my question would be now, do, do you just sit around and wait to reload and go after the title again? Or do you start thinking, let's get a little silly and see if we can make some fun matchups here for Yo Romero? Well, I'm, I mean, honestly, if they could convince Luke Rockhold to get off the bench and come in and do it, the, I, I would be tickled pink to see Luke Rockhold versus Yo Romero. Would watch. Yeah. Would watch that one. Hashtag would watch. You want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then uh, we'll move on to round number two this week. Yeah. Uh, well, Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Jed, did you happen to catch the promo for UFC 214? I've not seen it yet. It is fucking awesome. And I don't say that lightly or even all that often. We've been critical of the way the UFC has... Uh, hyped some of its fights in the past where it seems to kind of take a one-size-fits-all approach where you just tell us, this guy is the greatest, but this other guy might also be the greatest. Uh, or just try to shell out, sell us on sheer violence and Joe Rogan shouting, oh, over and over again as we see highlights. This one, though, they actually took the time and told you a story. And it's a compelling story about two different, very different people uh, who are going to clash with a lot of personal stakes on the line. And Chad, they went so deep into the storytelling this might be the first uh ufc promo i can recall to feature footage from a police body cam are you fucking kidding me you went there with that you fucking kidding me i love it well ben your boy dana white was on the fox sports one of late he said a lot of things but i have just kind of a long dana white quote that i want to read that i feel like is just sprinkled with are you fucking kidding me okay some of them negative some of them positive some of them just sort of uh uh say what kind of are you fucking kidding me so i'm just gonna read this and ben you haven't heard it so if you want to drop an are you fucking kidding me in there at any point you just okay go ahead i like this little participation here's dana white talking about floyd mayweather mayweather is very poised and controlled mayweather's a really smart guy I got into the deal, and, you know, he's surrounded by a lot of smart people, too, which made it easier to get the deal done than I thought it would be. I deal with a lot of people that think they're smart, and they're not, and that makes it harder. I always respected Floyd. Floyd and I have had our moments in the public here and there, but I've always respected Floyd, and Al Heyman is a very smart guy, very smart guy. It was actually a pleasure doing business with him. But Connor is a madman. Connor is a madman. He's going to let Floyd know what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. And everybody's been saying to me the whole time, do you think that Connor McGregor can really beat Floyd Mayweather? Pacquiao just got beat by a school teacher, okay? I just stopped doubting Connor McGregor a long time ago. Last night, I landed at LAX, and Connor McGregor landed at the same time from Ireland. We both landed at the same time, and I was waiting for him to get off the plane. He gets off from his flight from Ireland. He looks like he was just fitted at Armani. He walks off the plane, and he says, I will knock this man out within four rounds. Fucking kidding me. I mean, that's just awesome. (laughs) In its entirety. Just fitted at Armani. I will knock this man out in four rounds. 
That's going to do it for Are You Fucking Kidding Me? in round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, funny thing happened to Amanda Nunes on the way to UFC 213. Uh, sinusitis. You familiar with it? I've heard of it now. I have too. Never heard of it before. Apparently, it is an unpleasant affliction. Heard now from a couple people who said they've dealt with it. And it knocked Amanda Nunes right out of this event. Apparently, she's dealt with it before and has fought with it before. This time, she goes back and forth to the hospital a couple times and says she can't fight. And then you know what the MMA world does when a fighter pulls out of a fight. Oh, I know full well. The It is a documented phenomenon often discussed on this podcast how MMA seems to have some of the toughest athletes in the world and also seems to have uh, the fans most eager to call those athletes a bunch of wusses. And that's exactly what happened here. And the narrative got a good old head start. It's just a shove down the track, thanks to UFC President Dana White, who kind of went out of his way to frame this as uh, Amanda Nunes just, you know, didn't want didn't want to do this fight, ran away from this fight. It's all all in her head, ninety percent mental, I think was how he put it, uh, and then just kind of stepped back and motioned to the fans and said, "Get her." Uh, and that's kind of what happened on social media. Everybody, Amanda Nunes came out looking kind of bad here. Uh, Valentina Shevchenko piled on. Now they're probably going to end up doing that fight again. Your initial take on exactly what's happening. I mean, should Amanda Nunes have fought for one thing? And are we ever going to get to a point where we can look at it from a different perspective when it comes to the immediate fan reaction to this stuff? Well, all joking aside, it's... uh a really tough situation for everybody involved, Amanda Nunes, Valentina Shevchenko, and frankly for the UFC, because from the company's perspective, man, it is tough to lose your main event on the day of the fight card. Now, I don't know how much of the pay-per-view buy rate here was going to be driven by Amanda Nunes versus Valentina Shevchenko. I think a lot of people looked at this fight card and thought Robert Whitaker versus Yoel Romero was kind of the people's main event anyway uh and since we still got that uh fight i i i mean i don't know too many people who who with the absence of this women's bantamweight title fight would not then buy ufc 213 to see robert right. whitaker and, and yoel romero but they from, had to offer refunds so right which sucks for the for the ufc obviously so i think it's a tough situation for the promoter and and a really tough situation for the fighters like my default setting is that i'm always gonna kind of be sympathetic to the fighter right like that's just happens to be how i'm wired i feel like the thing that these people do uh, for the money and for our enjoyment is is so difficult that like you kind of got to give them the benefit of the doubt on all of these sort of physical uh all of these physical maladies all of this stuff that happens and like obviously we are not inside amanda Nunes's body and we do not know how badly she was affected by this sinus thing uh, I kind of see the UFC's point of view for being upset because it's tough to lose the main event on the day of the fight, but I don't see a workable forensic timeline for how Amanda Nunes might have backed out of this fight for 
reasons of fear uh, or like mental instability because like she'd already beat Valentina Tina Shevchenko once. She followed that up beating Misha Tate. Then she beat Ronda Rousey before she did any of that stuff. She went out there and choked out Sarah McMahon in two minutes and 53 seconds. So it's not like this is a person that, that, that just lucked into this spot and, and would not feel worthy. Like I, I feel like for like, if you're going to, if you're going to try to place any kind of blame or fault for anything, you know, regarding the situation, I think you just got to think she just didn't think she could go. That's the only logical explanation as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And the calculation that I think people are too quick to dismiss is if you're looking at it from Amanda Noon's perspective, because I think people pointed to her saying or her coach saying, hey, we've battled with it before. She's fought through it before. Um, but this time she just didn't think that she could do that. You know, she's in a title fight here. She's got the title. She is holding a lot of cards, but she's also not one of the UFC's favorites. It's not like she is the the person that they are, are putting a lot of promotional heft behind. So she knows that if you lose that title, you lose almost all the cards you have. And if you go out there and you're not 100% against Valentina Shevchenko and you lose, first of all, you know goddamn well we are not going to want to hear the excuses afterwards. Fans don't want to – no one listens to you if you say afterwards like, hey, I was really sick but I fought through it. Even if the, you could say to the UFC, hey, you know I was really sick and I fought through it. So uh, you know, do me a solid and, and book me that rematch. They might do it if they think that it's in their best interest, but they're not going to do it just because they feel like they owe you one. If you're Amanda Nunes in this case, they're going to tell you, hey, thanks for for pulling through. But we kind of think that that's just part of your job description. So it's not like there's going to be a whole lot on the, the other side waiting for you if you push through and it ends up being a bad idea. The championship is the most important thing you have working with. If you have that that championship, people then have to come to you. So I can understand if you felt like, hey, I just I really can't do it. But people are too quick to assume that oh, she probably could have really done it and she just didn't really want to or didn't think it was worth the risk because she put a lot of money into your training camp. You've spent a lot of time getting there. You get all the way there and then you don't get the big payday. And it was going to be a pretty sizable payday because if you're fighting in the main event on UFC 213, it's a pretty good pay-per-view. You got Yoel Romero and Bobby Knuckles on there. There's a lot of reasons for you to go through with that fight and really only one reason for you not to do it because you don't feel up to it. And if a fighter like this, someone, if it, it'd be different if it's somebody who has a history of this kind of stuff or somebody who doesn't have a long history at all in the sport. Uh, I think when you hear people making these comparisons, and I saw this a lot on Twitter where they're saying like, oh, it's like the kid who says he wants to fight after school, but then when it gets to be after school, he doesn't want to fight anymore. When you make those comparisons, you're telling us how you would feel about it. And I get that because most of us would feel this way. If most of us agree, like Chad, if you and I agreed to fight in six weeks, we're going to get in a cage and we're going to fight. I'm and, scared about the foot race. Like, <laughs> you know, we don't even have to have a fight. I'm, I'm going to back out of the foot race because I'm so nervous. It sounds like a fine idea right now, you know, for us to have a fight. And, but you know, we're not mad at each other or anything. It's just like this agreed upon thing that we're both going to do to make a living kind of thing. Once the, we get closer to the thing, you're going to have a lot of nights where you're laying in bed thinking about this thing and all the different ways that it could go. And maybe it doesn't sound so great anymore. And normal people would feel like this, these nerves and they might even look for a way to get out of it. Amanda Nunes has been at this almost 10 years, man. I, I mean, she's fought some scary fighters. She's had 18 professional fights. If she were going to be that kind of person, you'd have seen it by now. This can't just be a thing where you say, hey, she suddenly got the fear put in her by an opponent she had already beat once. 
uh, 10 years into her career, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I think when people try to put it and then people try to make all these other comparisons uh, and they're not really understanding the the exact calculus that a fighter has to go through to determine when it's worth it to fight through it and when it's not. If she says she couldn't go, I'm inclined to believe her that she couldn't go. And on top of all that, like you mentioned her holding some cards, but at the same time, if you, the circumstances surrounding backing out of this fight, and particularly the timing of it, just means that she loses almost all of those cards anyway. So it's not like if you were if she, it's not like she was scared to lose her title, so she decided to back out of this fight, like thinking that that would be the better option. Like clearly, what was done here was not the better option. It's got to be the option of last resort because. Uh, she. It's hard to imagine what happens next now, or or how she comes back to this, back from this, in the eyes of the UFC. Just because we know how that company operates, and we know that once it feels wronged like this, it it is gonna hold a grudge, for lack of a better term. So it's not like Amanda Nunes pulled a fast one here, right? Like there's gonna be some consequences for this. Granted, she probably still gets to be the champion, but like, I don't think being her and being in this situation, she would look at this and think, oh, well, I did, like, this is a great thing that I've done. Yeah. Like, this is the preferable outcome for me than actually going out and having the fight. I just don't buy that. Well, I also just wonder, like, what effect this has long, because other fighters, they see this, and even the ones who are jumping on there being like, oh, I would have fought through it, I would have fought, and I'm sure, like, you'd, I'm sure a lot of people would have fought through this stuff, uh, in other circumstances, and Amanda Nunes might have fought through it in other circumstances if it wasn't this title fight where you're defending your championship and you know if you lose that, then you lose, you know, maybe everything. Maybe you never get another shot at that title again. Uh, but when the UFC has a fighter who's saying, I'm too sick, I can't go. And by the way, this stuff about, hey, the doctor cleared her, like, that does not necessarily mean what people think it means. It's not like you go to the doctor, they look you over and say, yep, you're cage fight ready. Like, they're just looking for you know, some obvious disqualifying things are checking like her hydration levels and stuff like that. Uh, maybe running a blood test or something, but people get cleared to fight with all kinds of maladies and injuries that they should probably not be cleared to fight with. Still not a great look for the promoter to go out there and say, Hey, I had a fighter who was in the hospital twice in the last 24 hours and I'm really upset at her for not fighting. Uh, you don't want to be that person. And I think the other fighters see this and this is such a established pattern on the UFC's part that, uh, you know, you you going out there and risking your health, uh, even in the situation where it is already a compromised health prognosis for you, that's just something they expect you to do. And if you're not going to do it, then you're going to catch a ton of shit from the UFC, uh, and they're going to encourage fans basically to give you a ton of shit. Uh, I don't know how you know that it's not like there's a plus side to harming the image of your champion in public like this if you're Dana White. Like, she's not going to... It's not like she's going to be like, okay, now I'll take the fight. It, other people are just going to realize, hmm, when the UFC says that they want people to be partners with them, really what they mean is if I screw them over, they're going to throw me under the bus. Uh, it just makes people kind of resent you long term and know that they can't really trust you. Like, they have to look out for themselves because you're not going to look out for them. It's going to be interesting to see where it goes. Uh, I'm going to venture a guess and say nowhere good uh, soon, maybe the UFC and Amanda Nunes eventually work past this and, and we get back to business as usual. But there's probably going to be some hard feelings for at least a little while. Uh, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three.
Well, Ben, Gegard Mousasi is on the move, crossing the aisle from the UFC to Bellator, like a couple of other high-profile fighters have done recently. Uh, now, this thing between Mousasi and the UFC, it's not like there was a big blow-up or any real, like, uh, public hard feelings or disagreements or anything like that. Mousasi just fought in April of this year at UFC 210, defeating Chris Weidman uh, by second-round TKO. Obviously, some some controversy surrounding that one. But uh, it just seemed like this was a situation where the promoter and the fighter couldn't come to an agreement on what they both thought that he was worth, and he went out and got a better deal from Bellator, at least from the outside looking in. That would be my guess. Yeah, well, it seems like uh, maybe the UFC is making these kind of calculations about who's worth keeping and who's not based on uh, what they can do as far as moving big pay-per-view buys or, or huge ratings or something. And maybe they thought Gegard Mousasi is not that guy. He's been around for a long time. Uh, but you're giving Bellator a better situation than they've gotten in these past kind of UFC defections. This one is different, uh, at least it seems to me. Because you, you look at some of the other guys that, that Bellator has gotten. You know, guys like Phil Davis... Uh, guys like uh, Benson Henderson, where it seemed like, okay, we we saw the ceiling of what they were going to do in the UFC, or at least we felt like we did, rightly or wrongly. Uh, and, you know, the UFC can't do a whole lot with them anymore, so they might as well go to Bellator. But this time, you got a guy on a five-fight winning streak, uh, a guy who has been an important fighter for the UFC basically since he got there. I mean, he was main eventing shows for the UFC right away. Um, has been the main event or the co-main event in all but one of his UFC fights, and that one was UFC 200. And even then, he offered to step in on short notice uh, to help out after the John Jones-Daniel Cormier fight fell apart. So, obviously, you know, he, he headlined his last one in, in November. Clearly, this is somebody that you thought mattered. He seemed to be on the upswing. You put him in a fight against Michael Bisping right now, he's probably the favorite. And now he's going to Bellator. Now, And not only that, but he's going at a time when Bellator actually has some other interesting people to match him up against. So this seems like a different situation than the one we've gotten used to in the past. Yeah, and one of the things that I think is is really different about it is that it kind of felt like Musasi had just found his stride in the UFC these last couple of years. He had had those uh, setbacks earlier in, in his career inside the octagon against Leota Machida and Jacare Souza and Uriah Hall. And it was kind of a situation where sometimes uh, we weren't quite sure what to make of Gegard Mousasi, a guy who appeared to have every physical skill and sometimes just kind of went out there and, and looked a little listless. Well, as you said, he just won five in a row and capped it with that victory over Chris Weidman, which is, you know, still kind of a big deal in the middleweight division. So, yeah, he felt like a guy that, like, not only did he still have good fights in front of him, but it felt like he was ascendant, you know, which I think is different than maybe even Rory McDonald crossing over from the UFC to Bellator. Uh, and it, so it, it feels like Bellator really picks up uh an up and not even, I don't know that up and coming is the right word but like a middleweight who's still whose best days may well still be in front of him and over there in Bellator Ben I feel like that has the potential to maybe even make Gegard Mousasi an awkward fit because I don't know exactly what his future will be in Bellator does he just uh become the middleweight champion or or you know toil away in the in the somewhat shallow Bellator middleweight division where I think there are a couple of interesting fights for him, but um, clearly not a, a career's worth. Or does he like sign up for the sort of fun fight, mix and match, weight class, jumping stuff that Bellator is doing with its bigger stars? Because Gegard Mousasi 
is a guy that I don't, even though like I think he would probably do that, it seems like his he, he A, would probably be the best fighter over there doing that, right? And B, like, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know that that would be a fun matchup for a lot of those dudes over there. I don't know if you're Chael Sonnen or Vanderlei Silva that you would be like, oh, Gegard Mousasi? Heck yeah. yeah. Sounds like <laughs> a great time for me. Yeah. Well, uh, here's an interesting quote from a, a story that went up on MMA Junkie today. Um, and like Stephen Morocco talked to uh, Gegard uh, and uh, his manager and uh, his they both say that basically the UFC offer was fairly close to Bellator's, that it was competitive, so it wasn't like one just completely blowing the other out of the water. Um, but here's what uh, Musasi said that he kind of made up his mind early on that he wanted a Bellator offer. Quote, because I know what other fighters were making. If I compare myself to Vitor Belfort, I know Vitor has been fighting for a long time, but I'm a better fighter than Vitor. I have a better record than him. I have more championships. I'm younger, and I can fight another five years while he's on his way out. I didn't even want the same number as Vitor. That's the problem. I just wanted to be a little bit closer, maybe half of what Belfort would make. I didn't think I was asking for too much. Uh, then later says, the new owners at WMEIMG, they don't understand fighting as well. The Fertitta brothers, they made the company. Even Dana White, he doesn't work with the same people. All the other guys got fired. One fight before my contract expired, I believe they would have pushed bigger negotiations and it would have been different. But this company, they have a lot of debt. That's not the fighter's fault. They're cutting staff and cutting fighters' money. That's not our problem. Um, And he had, you know, a lot to say also about the Reebok deal and just kind of the, he got $10,000 from Reebok, which felt like a slap in the face to him, uh, just being kind of locked into this deal by virtue of fighting for the UFC. One thing I'm going to miss, honestly, is the... Uh, outspoken criticism of the UFC from within that Gegard Mousasi has recently embraced. This has been a big part of the reason why he's got a lot more interesting to fans. We talked about him in the past, this kind of like glumly realistic assessment that he has offered at times about how the business works right now, his place in the division, what it's going to take for him, what different fights mean to him. Uh, Doing all that while winning a bunch of fights made everybody, I think, kind of stop and re-notice Gegard Mousasi. Now he goes over to Bellator, I kind of wonder what what the narrative will be. Right. And that, that, I think that quote makes Gegard Musasi seem like a smart person who is doing the, the right thing for his career here and going to get some more money uh, in Bellator. But it also makes me wonder, like, as we've seen with people like Rampage Jackson in the past, not that I would necessarily want to draw a, a character uh, connection between Rampage and, and Gegard Musasi, but like, you know, if Gegard Musasi is outspoken in his, in his, uh, critiques of the UFC and then he goes over to Bellator and it turns out the grass is not necessarily any greener over there in the terms in terms of you know compelling matchups or championships and or the long-term outlook for for his own career like does he then fall out with that company does he like start uh issuing the same kind of statements about Bellator uh, which I think will just be kind of interesting to watch as he starts to get his feet wet over there and clearly like this quote also brings up a lot of the stuff kind of simmering underneath the surface that we've wondered about the for for the entirety of the WME IMG era in the UFC about how it's going to work with uh, the the company coming in that does not necessarily see this as a labor of love but sees it more as as a a straight up business investment. Well, yeah, and I think the one of the things that gradually changes when stuff like this starts happening is we talked before about the psychological barrier for some of these fighters thinking you know hey i want to be ufc champion i didn't get in this to try to be bellator champion but as you start to see higher and higher profile guys and like you said more guys who are still ascendant in their careers moving over i think that calculus 
will start to change for a lot of people. I think that they will start to look at it and think like, okay, well, hey, there are good guys over there. And you get in a couple of divisions where you think, hey, maybe the Bellator champion has, would beat the UFC champion. Then I think people will start to look at it differently, especially if the money is comparable or even better in Bellator. Uh, it doesn't become the same thing where you feel like you're necessarily taking a step back because you've seen a lot of other guys already take that step. So I, I think that it is going to have this trickle effect, uh, especially as Bellator gets a lot more competitive and bidding for these free agents. And we've already seen how guys fighting out their contracts to become free agents is way more common now than it was three or four years ago. You know, it used to be a thing that almost nobody did to the point where when somebody did do it, uh, it became a huge news item just by virtue of the fact that it's happening. Now we see it a lot more. It's not that big a deal. It's not unusual. And I think that once you get a little more free, interesting free agent market, then you might just start to see more movement. You want to just saying stuff? Sure. Then we'll get out of here for this week. Well, Ben, this week, I'm just saying, I know that as August the 26th gets closer, and once the much ballyhooed fight between Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather actually takes place, that we're probably going to all be having a little bit of fun at Conor McGregor's expense. Uh Nobody expects him to win this fight. It's a possibility he's going to get absolutely steamrolled. I think, you know, just judging from what I know about the combat sports world, that uh, there might be some meme-worthy stuff going on over there in Las Vegas this particular weekend. But I did want to just say one thing that I hope we can kind of keep in the back of our minds, particularly as MMA fans, as when it comes to Conor McGregor's foray into boxing. And that is that I would like to have us all remember somewhere deep in our mind brains that Floyd and Conor are having this fight under the one combat sports rule set where Floyd Mayweather would win, right? They have a grappling match. Conor McGregor probably wins. They have a kickboxing fight. Eh, Conor McGregor probably wins. They have an MMA fight. I hope Conor McGregor wins. Certainly, I think that he would win. It just so happens that the economics of combat sports are are set up in such an unfortunate manner that for Conor McGregor to want to make $125 million, he's got to go over and have a boxing fight against Floyd Mayweather and probably get pretty handily tuned up. But I'm just saying, remember... In any other kind of fight, Conor McGregor probably wins. I'm just saying. What about X-Arm? Remember that thing? Now, where that it was like the arm wrestling thing where they that have to like link their arms you know up what? and punch each other with I'm, I'm going to give Conor McGregor the, uh, the nod there as well. Okay. I think that his power would make the X-Arm rule set in his favor. Sumo? Sumo wrestling? Probably Conor. Okay. Yeah. Uh, leg wrestling? Probably Conor. Thumb wrestling? Floyd. No, I don't know. Probably Connor. Ben, what's your just saying stuff for this week? Jed, I'm just saying. I'm sitting there Saturday night. I'm watching UFC 213. Uh, the clean look of the fight kits. The clean Reebok uh, exclusive apparel deal look that is brought to the cage. Uh, that really, I was told, took this sport to the next level. Uh, when the UFC signed that deal, got all the fighters in Reebok looking like real professionals out there. Uh, even if it costs some individual fighters some money. Then I noticed something on the cage. It says gruntstyle.com. Grunt style? Grunt. Gruntstyle.com. And I go and I look it up, and it turns out uh, it's a military-themed clothing brand, very similar to Ranger Up, like a kind of a direct competitor to Ranger Up, a clothing brand that, as you recall, used to sponsor a bunch of fighters. 
Uh, and before the UFC sponsor tax was instituted, they used to sponsor fighters in both the UFC and Strike Force, uh, and doing pretty much the exact same thing as GruntStyle.com. And I see, okay, so Reebok is the exclusive apparel sponsor. Fighters can't have their own sponsors anymore. You only got like one apparel sponsor, but then you also somehow can sell an ad space to a different apparel sponsor. And this seems like exactly the kind of company that five or six years ago would have been giving this money to the fighters. And now, because there is no other choice, they give it to the UFC. I'm just saying. Huh. Seems like we've seen a kind of a redistribution of wealth in the sponsor market right there. Just saying. Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Uh, we will be back next week to talk about the stuff that happens at this weekend's UFC card, which has a main event that is currently eluding my memory. I think Santiago Ponzinibbio might be involved. Sure. It's possible. Uh, maybe we'll even talk about Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series. You never know. I hope not. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. What about if Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather do that thing from middle school where you both use pencils to try to break each other's pencil? Conor. Okay. Uh, arm wrestling? No, no X arm, just straight up arm straight wrestling? Straight up arm wrestling. Might depend on the arm, right? Yeah. Uh, Conor. Okay. I'm sticking by my just saying stuff. All I'm right. I'm wishy-washy around on this. I'm just trying to find the, the holes in your reasoning. All right, let's put your flip-flops on and we'll go out there and have this foot race. You ready? You, this is the biggest mistake you ever made